Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. So uh, I'm Joshua Miller. I'm the host of this podcast. Uh, I am in high school, so you know I'm starting down the uh, average white man path very early. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm uh, I'm uh, Bastiat. It's uh, a name I go by online. Um, I'm a uh, uh, corporate attorney by day, and I, I stream on Twitch by night. And uh, we have a whole lot of fun doing so at twitch.tv forward slash B-A-S-T-I-A-T. The name is uh, taken from, uh, it's my pseudonym, but I've taken it from a French economist uh, by the name of uh, Frederick Bastiat, who um, uh, I think he, he lived uh, sometime around um, the end of the reign of Napoleon to, uh, uh, I think, the uh, beginning of the reign of Napoleon III. So I uh, died around, I think, 1851, right after he uh, finished working on uh, the book that really got me into him, uh, The Law, which is where he kind of puts forth a, you know, I'd say, pretty high-level, basic, uh, you know, but nevertheless persuasive, uh, powerful theory of what governments should and should not do. So that's uh, that's me. You also wrote, I think, was one of the scathing arguments against protectionism, which is the if you know the candlemakers argument. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I think it, it goes to show that like we kind of imagine this early era of you know this era of early capitalism as being very you know completely free trade, no regulations whatsoever. But really, it was a fight to get rid of all these regulations. We didn't start at no mar. We didn't start at free markets. We started at completely closed markets. We actually fought for the free markets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. Uh, and you know, there was never. Um, well, it doesn't seem like. Uh, it, it seemed like, uh, from what I uh, from what I know, it was a, a fight on every uh, every issue, uh, and kind of that. Uh, you know, there was no just uh, one day where it's like, wow, or, you know, wake up and here we are. Capitalism is delightful. You know, I mean, you know, depending on where you're at in the uh, capitalist system, it is delightful. But uh, no, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, and France, uh, especially at the time, had a very closed economy. Britain was a little better off. But, you know, the United States at the time was choked with tariffs and, uh, you know, was for most of the 19th century. So it uh, it was certainly a uh, certainly a struggle. And, uh, you know, <laughs> tragically, it seems like the pendulum is swinging in that direction, uh, you know, since the Trump administration uh, uh, took office and, you uh, Here's to hoping it's an aberration rather than the beginning of uh, some new trend. Yeah, so speaking of the times where the pendulum really swung, I think this leads us perfectly into our first topic, which is, you know, the origin of neoliberalism, uh, which is, you know, as we all kind of know, you know, me and Bastiat, I think, are both pretty ardently, we could be described as neoliberals, as uh, adhering to, which is really, I think to me, is adhering to classical liberal principles, but putting a greater emphasis on economic science and economic reality than you know, your average libertarian does. Well, so that sounds like a good way to put it. If I were a libertarian, I might quibble with that. But I think that sounds like a, I think it sounds like a good way to put it. Um, I guess, it, you know, uh, uh, policy, uh, you know, ideals tempered by empirical reality, I suppose you might say. Um, so the individual is still at the heart of uh, of uh, and the system, freedom of the individual, that is, to develop and pursue the kind of life that they personally want to live rather than the kind of life that some 
uh, some bureaucrat or uh, you know a, a, a hard charging uh, a national leader decides is best for them. But at the same time, recognizes that, uh, you know, we, we live in the world that we live in. And so, uh, you know, we need things like a, a basic social safety net, which, uh, you know, people have different ideas on what that should include. But I would say it should include most of the suite of programs that are available, uh, you know, in, in Western European countries with respect to, say, healthcare. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, some basic housing supports, disabilities, uh, you know, uh, uh, care treatment and uh, funds for people with disabilities, things like that. Um, where, so I, I guess the, uh, the earlier uh, phase of liberalism sort of rejected all that. Um, and uh, I think this, uh, this idea of uh, a new liberalism, a neoliberalism, kind of dates back to the 1938 Walter Lippmann colloquium, yeah. which uh, I, I uh, don't know too much about. But I know the basic theme was uh, all these uh, economists from uh, the United States. Well, I think it was mostly Europeans, but I think there were a few Americans there. And then uh, Walter Lippmann, I think, was an American journalist. Who, uh, you know, they got together. And this was, uh, you know, 1938 is... Uh, <laughs> what is it? Uh, John McCain always, uh, he would always quote uh, Mao Zedong as saying, uh, well, as Chairman Mao always said, it's always blackest before it's totally black, right? 1938 is about as bleak a year as you can imagine, uh, other than, I guess, the war that followed it. Uh, because in 1938, uh, uh, fascism is riding basically about as high as it ever does, uh, you know, outside of uh, you know, its conquest. It's riding high, though, in the system uh, or in the sense of being perceived as a system by which, you know, societies can develop and advance themselves. Um, and the same, I guess, was out there with communism. Uh, the name of, uh, of uh, socialism in the Soviet Union hadn't yet been soiled by the realities of uh, Stalin and Lenin and, and all the death and famine and brutality. So, um, you know, uh, for uh, a lonely liberal Democrat, uh, it's a pretty scary time. Yeah, and even in the West where they, you know, they would normally be strongest, you had you know, a really aggressive level of Keynesianism going on, sort of, or well, Keynesianism in general is correct, but because of the Great Depression, government's taken more and more steps towards price controls, towards aggressive economic interventions, towards violations of property rights, but that really frightened, you know, the people who joined the conference, who were, I think that some of the biggest names you'd recognize in the conference, Mises, Hayek, uh, and Wilhelm Rapka, who were all sort of brought different divergences to the path of more like economic liberalism but it's the first time they kind of they kind of drew a line between what you know drew the line for how far the government could go in a western society yeah no it's true and i guess the the the, the big ideas you know in, in this age of of uh, rising collectivism Trying to think of a liberalism that could, uh, you know, basically uh, uh, stand sustain. up for itself, right? Sustain itself. Um, and so uh, adopting, I guess, some of those sort of collective type programs without uh, sacrificing, you know, using them to service that broader goal of uh, the full and free development of the individual um, rather than, uh, you know, like uh, the fascists and the communists, basically, uh, you know, all of, uh, all of their, uh, aims were toward the advancement and glorification of the state. Um, you know, the language they used was a little different. The means they used was a little different, but ultimately it was, uh, you know, it was uh, brutality and misery all the way down. So, yeah. And I think at these conferences is when you see the, uh, 
the sort of divergence in, in the question being brought up of how far does the state go to make sure to, that that individual liberty is sustained and also society itself is sustained. Uh, I think you get like you know in terms of like it, like even a, even a, like a post war which is the Mont Pelerin Society, which is the second big neoliberal conference, which happened. It only happened, like, what, nine, uh, nine years after the one at the Walter Lippmann Club. And you still, people at the, at the Mont Pelerin one were even way more individualist because they had seen the full extent of fascism and communism. But that's when you get the sort of divergences. You got your Rafka with, like, order liberalism and the social market economy. You got Mises who says whatever intervention in the economy is ever done, automatically negative, it should be illegal. Got Hayek and Friedman sort of towing the line in the middle, who are like, "Yeah, you should let the market dictate those things, make make sure it still competes." That's the that's the big divergence, I think, in like the Western liberal thought. Yeah, damn, I uh, I was not uh, really uh, man. I didn't know any of this when I was. Uh, I'm not sure how old you are, but you said high school. I didn't know any of this stuff in high school. I was watching. Um, I was watching friggin' Bill O'Reilly on Fox News. I don't know if you know who that is. I'm not because he's not on Fox News. Uh, yeah. you know, I remember Sean when he Hannity. got fired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, and you know, Diamond Dozen. Now I guess the the uh, uh, Tucker Carlson, who back then was kind of this. Uh, uh, I don't remember much of his substance, but he seemed comparatively like a quirky dork, as opposed to the. Uh, Nasbol. As opposed to the yeah, that uh, that he's uh, he's uh, you know who knows what he actually uh, believes versus what he's figured out is most profitable to uh, spin, but um, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, that's uh, uh, I think that's pretty cool, Joshua. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, it's uh, it's uh, there's a great essay I guess that. Uh, I think uh, kind of undergirds it all, uh, and that's uh, Milton Friedman's neoliberalism and his prospects from uh, I think 1951. A brilliant one. Yeah, and it's it uh, it kind of uh, it kind of lays things out, and I think um, there's a line in there that says, "Let me see if I can find this." So cute. Yeah, oh, okay. I so, save somewhere. Oh, right on. Yeah, I've got I've got it uh, pulled up here. So the idea is, uh, let me just read this paragraph here. Neoliberalism would accept the 19th century liberal emphasis on the fundamental importance of the individual, but it would substitute for the 19th century goal of laissez-faire as a means to this end, the goal of the competitive order. It would seek to use competition among producers to protect consumers from exploitation, competition among employers to protect workers and owners of property, and competition among consumers to protect the enterprises themselves. The state would police the system, establish conditions favorable to competition and prevent monopoly, provide a stable monetary framework, and relieve acute misery and distress. Citizens would be protected against the state by the existence of a free private market and against one another by preservation of competition. And I think broadly speaking, that's something to, that's something to, uh, you know, you never get to perfection, but that's certainly something you can aspire to. Um, of course, the devil's always in the details. And um, I do think that it's, uh, you know, since that time, I think we've seen, um, uh, you know, maybe some more success in some of the uh, elements uh, there than others. Um, for example, I think that probably the most successful, uh, the most successful element has been a competition among pr uh, producers protecting uh, uh, consumers. Um, you know, and uh, it's a it's a more open question, I think, whether competition among employers to protect workers uh, has been uh, as successful. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, so I think uh, ultimately there's, uh, but nevertheless, I think we, you know, we've seen uh, some success in all of that. And I think the real area where uh, the neoliberals of today differ is that Milton Friedman really didn't spend too much time talking. 
about the uh, uh, means by which. Well, he spent some time talking about it, but it wasn't. You know, his big uh, his big goal was uh, uh, you know uh, unwinding this trend toward collectivism, right? But now um, I know a lot of folks uh, uh, on the uh, neoliberal uh, side of things will talk about what they mean by relieving acute misery and distress, right? So that that. Uh, I think uh, that's really the question for a lot of folks is how far do you want to go there to build a, a welfare state that uh, that does that? Um, you know, do you want a state that really does, you know, is the goal to create a state that uh, makes work, I guess, fundamentally optional? Or is the goal to just create a state in which nobody has to go without the most basic fundamental needs? Or where do you go in between that, you know? Um, one of the most interesting things I hear uh, from folks when I talk to lefties on uh, Twitch is they'll say, well, you know, you talk on, you talk and talk and talk all about these rights that you have, right? All these uh, negative rights, you know, the right to be free from this and to be free from that. Well, what about the right to food or to housing or to healthcare? That's a, that's a right, isn't it? You know, you need all that stuff to live. Um, you know, it is, you know, your version of freedom basket is basically the freedom to starve to death alone. Well, you know, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> That's one way to put it. it um, I do think the yeah, I do think the rights to be free from things are fundamentally more important than the rights to things. Yeah. And I think that it's important to remember, I suppose, that you don't have a right to anybody's labor. So you can only ever really um, go so far with the concept of having a right to, yeah. for example, you know, uh, medical care. But I do think it's good policy, and so yeah. I think that you know that ought to be. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm not sure what the argument against universal uh, health care is anymore. I don't know that there is one. Yeah, but I also know that um, like there's a sort of left interpretation of rights when you get into the meat of what they're saying, it it really does look scarily close to like collective over individual kind of stuff, or this idea that um the the state is the ultimate arbiter of things. Like you can't have an exclusive right to healthcare that because that implies that you're forcing someone to labor for you. In that case, you have you might have a right to have the government pay for your healthcare. Or the right for you to to uh, for the government to provide coverage, but you can't just say I have the natural right to healthcare in the abstract of a state or a payment system. I get like to a degree what we're saying is sort of semantic, but yeah. it's important to remember, I suppose, because ultimately that is true. I suppose though that for them, the word right is sort of a you know it's sort of a just good branding. I mean, the left uh, left seems to have a thing about uh, you know uh, the the um, how the slogan rolls off of the tongue is more important than the the substance of the slogan, I suppose. Yeah, they'll and, call anything a, a human right and then complain yeah. that it's scarce. But you know, I mean, it's so it's it's understandable though that uh, that they're somewhat skeptical. I think of the notion, like for example, um, you have a right to uh, you, know, you have a right to a fair trial, right? You have a right to uh, you have a uh, right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. You know, have all those uh, uh, rights. You know, in the U.S. Constitution. Well, you also have the right to an attorney, at least in a criminal proceeding, um, which is a kind of positive right. Uh, but you know that positive right, I suppose, is a necessary corollary of the broader negative right, which is to be free from, uh, to be free from, uh, you know, for example, yeah. arbitrary arrest and detention. And yeah. I, I believe uh, if you look at the Supreme Court decision that at, in for the Gideon decision, yeah, it doesn't say you you can pick a lawyer and be like that guy has to defend me. It's right, the government yeah. has to provide funds for a lawyer to yeah. provide it to you. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of interesting because I suppose the. Um, 
the uh, the hypothetical right to health care would itself not be limitless. Um, so it's kind of, I, I, yeah, I don't know that it really means much to say that, but it is, you know, it's a good policy that some 20 or 30 uh, countries in Europe and East Asia have done. And so I don't know that there's any argument against universal health care. Although one thing I don't understand is why so many folks insist on, um, you know, the Bernie style plan where it's basically uh, NHS for the USA, you know, where not only is uh, everybody on Medicare, but like you can't you can't compete with Medicare if you want to. I don't really understand that. I think the um, you know Germany has uh, you know comparable health outcomes and still maintains some private health insurance. The costs are still pretty low. Um, everybody seems relatively happy with it. So it seems like that's you know something you could actually do in the United States rather than sort of dreaming that you could just you know abolish uh, the private entities that make up, I think now what the healthcare system is, I think a sixth of the U S economy. I, I yeah. heard it's massive. So, you know, um, that's a, that's a big, uh, that's a big damn shakeup, but you know, fortunately, uh, the Germans, uh, have shown that you can have, yeah. uh, you know, you can mesh that you can have universal service. Um, you can have universal coverage and it can be affordable without saying, you know, the government literally controls everything. Yeah. And I think, uh, some important lessons to take away from European, and I guess Australian healthcare. Uh, Germany's a federal system, not a unitary system. They, because they adapt their healthcare plans to each state that allows them to customize things as needed. Like I can't imagine the healthcare system you'd implement in Southern California would be at all like the one you'd implement in Wyoming, because in Wyoming there's an abject lack lack of hospitals and a lack of patients. So free market probably does better there because it finds the equilibrium. You know so. Or there could be an argument that it does worse. Same thing in Southern California. Too many patients and there's plenty of medical infrastructure, so it could be do worse or better. But it, the thing is they both work separately. They both work differently. Yeah. You know, I've heard um, I've heard folks in my uh, community say that there's a, a way to do healthcare totally 100% free market. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'd, I'd love for that to be the case, but I suppose I'm skeptical, one, that it would be possible to ever actually unwind um, – like I think one third of Americans have government health care in some fashion right now yeah. between Medicare, Medicaid, VA um, and uh, various federal uh, insurance programs. And the people who are, are who are uncovered are the ones who would need government health care and are currently yeah. getting covered up. Yeah. So it's – I don't know that you're ever – I mean it's hard to imagine ever unwinding all of that without some kind of immediate replacement. So um, I think that probably the, the best thing to do is to think about what systems in Europe – uh, East Asia, Australia, New Zealand have uh, have uh, the most relevance to the American system and to uh, you know to uh, what we could do here in the United States. Um, I wouldn't want to totally reinvent the wheel, but you know, I'm sure there's some you know we'd have to have some unique elements to it, of course. But I think uh, I just haven't been persuaded that there's a way to do uh, you know fully free market healthcare that achieves the goal of universal coverage. That is affordable, and it just doesn't seem at the moment, you know. And now part of that may be because the system of regulation in the United States is so Byzantine and strange, partly as a result of you know of World War II, where um, wage and price controls were implemented, and so if businesses wanted to compete for employees, they had to provide, uh, you know, they could provide benefits, hence. The employer healthcare system that has grown and mutated into what we have today, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't see a way around that, and um, 
so yeah, I think uh, 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 New Liberal today accepts and recognizes the importance of some kind of welfare state, um, but also I think would be more interested in looking at outcomes rather than intentions. You know, yeah. like uh, free college, for example, is a program I know that a lot of people are very skeptical of. You know, pointing to, for example, the experience in Britain where they had it and then they, they uh, I believe, they rolled it back. So, you know, it's not, uh, it, it would certainly depend issue by issue, universal yeah. health care. And for God's sake, I am tired as an American of hearing about these Canadians talking about their great health care system. Everybody's talking about their great health care yeah. system. Although, Meanwhile, I go to the hospital uh, for an emergency room visit and I'm $5,000 minimum. So, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of sick of it myself. Although, I think it's also important to remember that Canada has the worst of the single payer systems. Uh, there's something about the North American continent that really makes standardizations hard, which is why um, I'd say go for the German one. But also, it, the thing is with like, healthcare at the free market too, uh, is that healthcare as a market suffers like more failures than nearly any other, maybe other than like like currency market itself. Um, because in healthcare markets, you have the fact that people are instantly pressed into buying a product. They can't refuse the service because they're dying. They, they can't comparison shop on the way to the emergency room. You have no choice when an ambulance picks you up. Um, if you don't have health insurance, then you're at imminent risk of great personal harm, essentially. So it, it has all these market failures that you that would make you know a commodity market just not work, as opposed to food, where it's just enough food and people know what food is, kind of, at least I hope, the point where that, that functions. Or if your car is, for example, that functions. But healthcare is... A, whole different beast in terms of commodity yeah yeah it seems uh it seems that way and it's it's it, it, uh you know I, I guess what um what kind of annoys me is the notion among some that uh well okay if, if uh if we can see that uh if we can see that it's good in one area well why don't we do it everywhere like one of the most inane and strange arguments i've uh, i've heard and been involved with on twitch is about okay well you know what about food you know, and it's like, well, uh, you know, in the United States, we have massive diversity of food. Uh, the only problem we seem to have is over consumption. Well, the biggest problem we seem to have yeah. is overconsumption. There's environmental impact issues, too, and things like that. But, but uh, you know, I remember hearing once I was in an argument with somebody on the left who said, no, 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 no. we should just have, um, you know, the, the government should prepare a box of food uh, that is of optimal nutrition <laughs> and it should deliver that box of food yeah, to that people. That seems depressing. Uh, uh, no, it is. Uh, it's 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 just it, there are a lot of nonsense ideas out there. Yeah. Um, like that that you know, like that takes something that works pretty well and gives people all kinds of uh, individual freedom of choice uh, and initiative. And uh, you know, folks want to muck it up because of some uh, hackneyed theory of uh, exploitation, which is very poorly defined. Uh, like you know, a, when it is defined at all, the deontology. Like if you, if you look at outcomes, there's not really a command economy out there that's has more food than the Western market economies do. Like, there's a reason the Soviet Union and now it's China and uh, North Korea all have food problems because it's just one of those things that it's so hard to pin down optimal dis distribution and you know and to make sure that you're doing a better job than the invisible hand that you just can't do it. There's a uh, there's a fellow by the name of uh, Chris Miller who I think he's a, a professor of some kind. I don't know what his uh, what is. Uh, let, let me see here. Yeah, he's he at least as of. Um, uh, as of uh, the day of this uh, website where they sell his book was a uh, assistant professor uh, in international history, and he uh, wrote a um, he wrote a book called "The Struggle to Save the Soviet Economy," 
And he did a lecture uh, about this that I watched recently where he talks about the rise and fall of Soviet power. And um, he says that really the Soviet economy was uh, and planned economies are to the extent they're especially good at anything. The only thing they seem to really be good at is the production of weapons and things adjacent to weapons. You know, so, for example, rockets, missiles. Well, you know, that can help you with the space program, too. But by and large, uh, the Soviet Union seemed only to really have success um, you know, unique success above and beyond what a market economy could do with respect to weapons. Well, I think the reason is, is that theoretically with wealth, uh, with weapon production, there's infinite demand. Uh, and so you don't really have this issue where the supply, you know, is too low or too high because they're consumed as needed and as wanted. And there's a, there's a general feedback loop in that case. Like with food, um, there's not an infinite demand for food. Uh, so the market usually adjusts to it, and, if, and the demand fluctuates. With weapons, the government itself is is you know saying we need a hundred thousand tanks produced next five years, and the planned economy can just you know make that because it's a factory to you know to to road, whereas opposed to food, it's just a whole complicated system you can't really govern from a commissar's office. It's uh yeah it's yeah that's a no it's an excellent point I mean it's uh, it's a lot harder when you've got that uh, you know you've got all those pesky individuals who want things the way they want them right um uh, not to mention the, the people producing their goods and and like you said it's uh, you know it's a very different industry um but it was also uh, you know, even then he made the point that really um you know the success that they had with weapons wouldn't even really be possible in a democratic society because. You know, at a certain point, I know that we talk a lot about the size of the defense budget in the United States, but it is still ultimately constrained to at least some degree by the uh, uh, the democratic process. Whereas in the Soviet Union, there was no such process. And so I believe he said at its height, it consumed somewhere between 25 and uh, between a fourth and a third of the entire Soviet economy. I think it was close to a fourth, but that this put it uh, very briefly um, not only on par with, but ahead of the United States defense budget for an economy several times the size of the Soviet economy. So it's, uh, it's, but anyway, that, that's really, it seems like the extent of what planning can do for you. If you're about to be invaded by the Nazis, uh, you know, plan economy, uh, can help you build more tanks. But, uh, even then I, I told that somebody today and they, they said that they, they had their own skepticism about that theory, but you know, so it goes. So, uh, the long and short of it though is planning, uh, planned economies don't seem to be particularly, uh, particularly successful. So I guess in that sense, I understand the skepticism of people who, um, you know, people who uh, hear universal health care and conclude, ah, you want to introduce that kind of planning into health care, don't you? Well, you know, not exactly because, you know, European countries and, uh, you know, other you know, countries in the rest of the world as well have shown, well, you know, it's not exactly a command system for health care. It's yeah. more about uh, universal coverage. You know, um, I, I want to sort of pick up that point you made about college or free college earlier. Um, I do know that uh, like if you look at outcomes, the amount you'd pay for universal college or for, I mean, for free college compared to the amount you'd pay for universal pre-K is you pay way more for universal college. And universal pre-K has a greater effect than universal college or, uh, on you know people's uh, end outcomes, which it always makes you kind of feel that like the Bernie bros, there's a reason why there are a lot of them were college students is because he, he promised them to help. He promised really to help the middle class. And the white middle class, which went, to, which lived, you know, went to colleges more so than he was planning on help, helping Rust Belt workers, more so than he was planning on helping immigrants and the and the ultra urban poor, or the ultra urban poor, um, ultra poor. 
I, I don't know. I don't know about uh, his his plans for those folks. I mean, I figure Medicare for all would have helped a lot of people. You know, I mean, I don't think it's the best way to do healthcare in this country, yeah. but I mean, it probably would have, for most people in terms of their access to healthcare, been a step up from what we have now. I, but I mean, I think any of the Democrats would have, you know, put together some kind of step up from what we have now. But I don't know. I, I don't, I think the Bernie folks, um, you know, look, they just really, uh, I, I think there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of emotion there, one, because they're so committed to the candidate. And, you know, it's it's it hurts to lose for sure. I mean, I I know I wouldn't have been happy if uh, if uh, Bernie had won. You know, I would have been frustrated, but uh, you know, that uh, about that. But you know, you you got to recognize at the same time that you know, look, as much as I reject socialism and I don't like the idea of, for example, a candidate like Bernie Sanders who would have in any way normalized it. I feel like an honest socialist is a good step uh, ahead of a, uh, a, you know, corrupt, crony, uh, crony, um, uh, crony capitalist, to use a, a, a term of art, corrupt, crony capitalist, kleptocrat, uh, you know, dare yeah, I say, proto-fascist like, uh, you know, like Donald Trump. So there's no question of which, for me, there's no question of which Democrat or you know, no question of voting for the Democrat. It's just a question of which Democrat was the best for you know, your yeah. particular goals for society. Yeah. I know that Jared Polis uh, described, well, he's governor of, Cal- of Colorado. He describes Donald Trump as a cronyistic socialist. I think it's just such a great attack against him. But it's kind of true. Trump's more willing to bail out his buddies in the collective via, you know, public funds than he is willing to allow the market to, you know, take down his friends. And it's, it's, you know, you know, if you ever read um, "Why Nations Fail" uh, by Asimov or Robinson, um, that he kind of described, well, they kind of describe these institutions of being either extractive or inclusive, and countries with extractive institutions have done way worse than inclusive ones. So, the inclusive institution would be a well-recommended market, and an extractive institution would be the government planning things and taking things for itself and enriching like one group of people. Uh, and I think that it really kind of shows you that the um, it comes to show that Trump is focused all his efforts on enriching himself, and that makes the country do worse. Um, if you look at China, when the government stopped, the government stopped appropriating things for itself. It, it did much better. If you look at the comparison to North and South Korea, the, the you know, South as being more inclusive, North being more about just taking money for the you know the family, they did uh, the South did better. Well, I guess the the it feels like that's ultimately. I guess the the quibble with socialism is it feels like they aspire to a different kind of inclusive institution, but I feel like it cannot help but ever really be extractive. And they can aspire to it being inclusive, but I think just by virtue of the nature of such institutions, they become fundamentally extractive. Um, but, you know, uh, that being said, we, we're probably missing out because the real socialism has never been tried, right? <laughs> but all, all, all kidding aside, I guess to finish the point about the Bernie people, I think they genuinely want a better world. Uh, but, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's uh, I, it feels like there's a, a whole lot of nonsense in there. Um, unfortunately, along the way, uh, I think his uh, his program on trade, for example, would not have been uh, you know would have been yeah. a, a step in the wrong direction. Rejoin the TPP, please, Biden. Yeah, yeah that'd be yeah, that'd be great. You know, um, but it's uh, you know. 
that said, though, I would have been an enthusiastic Bernie bro uh, if he had won the primary because, uh, you know, again, a, a man who is at least uh, <laughs> I, I feel like, um, you know, a, a somebody who is not trying to destroy the system, but who is simply trying to, I guess, reform it in a way that I disagree with is fundamentally better to me, I think, than somebody who is trying to um, destroy the system and therefore hope, or who, even if he's not trying to, his his actions go to the destruction of that system. Like Trump uh, destroys institutions, and I don't have any worry really about Bernie Sanders doing that. Yeah. I know that he would uh, have, for example, rolled back you know, free markets, but not in a way that would have made it say impossible, to, impossible to like restore them i don't worry about him you know i i, I wouldn't i have no worry about him uh you know or, uh contesting an election that he fairly lost you know things like that um yeah. so i i as tempting as it can be to to mock some of the radical lefties uh i try to i try not to go too hard on that because the real threat right now is the yeah. is the far right that, I think, I think the, that has control over as a, of a, the White House and one branch of Congress. Yeah, I mean, I think about um, uh, I think about the uh, just the individuals who like are hurt by his policies that there's no like it seems like the point is the cruelty, like the treatment, yeah. for example, of um, of uh, immigrants just seems to be based in nothing but a desire to hurt. Um, so if it's can, uh, like if they want to rebuild the American economy, you need more immigrants. Like I think this is estimate like we need to import like like 25 million new workers to save Social Security. Possibly. Oh, well, pro probably. But I mean, even if even if though, even if your goal was to enforce immigration law, um, and not, uh, you know, like why then are the conditions at these uh, border camps yeah. like so miserable? Or why are they right? deporting so like brutal. people who've been in the country for thirty yeah. years? Why like, the DACA? Uh, yeah. uh, constant drama with uh, with respect to DACA, right? Or the you know deporting college students in our time of great need. Yeah, it just seems like it's a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, I need to use this term, I guess, fan service for his base. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not based in anything other than that and kind of a sort of callous, negligent cruelty. Yeah, so uh, speaking of presidential candidates, like, who did you support this year? Uh, I was a Yang guy. Yeah, I liked Andrew Yang, and I liked, um, after him, I liked uh, Mayor Pete. Um, yeah, but, you know, great. it... It's it's uh, it's uh, um, you know and I think uh, I think they all would have been all right. I was not uh, so into um, Kamala Harris because one of the, during one of those debates, um, uh, she was having a, a kind of a one on one with uh, Joe Biden on something. I don't remember where this uh, came up, but basically Joe Biden was saying, "Well, you know, we can't really do what what you have proposed because." You know, that wouldn't be constitutional. And Kamala Harris just said, basically, look, uh, I'm going to, you know, we're going to do what we can do. All right. We'll worry about whether it's constitutional later. Uh, OK, yeah. no, thanks. Not not interested in that. Um, but, you know, I still would have you know, I still would have voted for her, uh, you know, over. You know, there's no no question of that. But, um, yeah, so I, I liked uh, I liked uh, Pete Buttigieg, though. I liked Andrew Yang. Um, I didn't like all of Andrew Yang's ideas. But, uh, <laughs> what's that? 
they're, they are young. Yeah, that's I think true. That, They'll that be makes back. stronger. Yeah, I liked um, I I didn't like all of his ideas, but I liked some of his big ideas. Um, Andrew Yang, that is so. You know, um, and he was uh, cool. I met him. Yeah. It's was, it was really neat. I met him at an arcade in New Hampshire. It's <laughs> fun. Um, uh, you think Harris is going to be the the VP choice? I think it's going to be Susan Rice for whatever reason. Uh, yeah, I'm. Um, if I had to guess, um, I probably guess. Uh, I I probably guess. Well, let's see. Um, I guess those are the the top two contenders right now from uh, from all the whispering I've heard. But I guess we're going to find out next week. I think uh, I think Susan Rice's experience would probably be more uh, more helpful, I suppose, from what I know, than uh, Kamala Harris's experience, given the uh, uh, ruin uh, that this administration has done with respect to our foreign uh, foreign relations. Um, you know, Susan Rice was a, a big diplomat, but yeah, um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure Joe Biden, I'm sure Joe Biden will make a, a good choice because you know uh, I, I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that they are daily considering, okay, what did Hillary do uh, and how can we not make that mistake? You know, like uh, Tim Kaine was apparently a pretty uh, – uh, yeah. just didn't really the, help her. The fact that Pence sort of won a debate against him was just embarrassing. Mike Pence is not a smart man by any regard and he still managed to, to make – to get points in against Tim Kaine. I uh, I don't I'm not a I'm not a Mike Pence fan, but I think that you've got to be a certain kind of uh, devilishly clever to uh, you know to make it one heartbeat away from the presidency. Yeah. Oh, I think also also I think I forget who who came up with this idea, but I do remember that Mike Pence spent a weird amount of time as mayor of, of Indiana for fighting on like the national stage. So he he'd always been sort of preparing for a presidential run i don't remember like, like, what happened with him but he something uh, he, something had happened to him where it seemed like his star was falling and then uh, trump saved him like he was the like he was the guy who like made all the news by like going and suing government because like oh you're, you're making me give up my religious rights yeah yeah i remember that yeah yeah kind of a kind of a uh Although at this point, hell, uh, I, it's hard now to think of somebody who wouldn't be an improvement over President Trump. But... Yeah, P Pence at least like if Pence is competent though, then, then yeah. Pence can get Trump's agenda done with yeah. just so much more e evil included. Like Trump's yeah. been held back on the fact he doesn't know what he's doing. It's it's uh yeah this, this last four years is really um, uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at least uh, uh, invites people to reckon invite people to reckon you know, is it is it better to have somebody who um, uh, seems incompetent and malicious or somebody who is competent and malicious and uh, <laughs> I, I guess uh, the jury's still out but I think uh, incompetent and malicious has really shown its uh, shown its cards yeah. with this like um, to me you know like Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld I'm just not that I don't really hate Donald Rumsfeld that badly I, I think he's actually pretty decent in a lot of issues but like cheney and the, the, the kind of the, the boys in the uh, early 2000s like they were they had a lot of aggressive i don't want to say evil but aggressive ideas for remaking america and remaking our foreign policy but they they were smart they were clever they knew how to, to play their hand and you know trump if trump found people the same ideas as or the same ideals as uh you know rumsfeld and cheney and powell he wouldn't he, he wouldn't get anything done and it'd just be a spiraling disaster of just him yelling on Twitter.
<laughs> Law and order 500 times in one day. <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing that kind of I wonder about, sorry, I'm playing with my light here. One thing I wonder <laughs> about is whether, um, like, if I, was a, if I was a Zoomer and, like, President Trump had really been the only president I really, like, knew about for my kind of conscious sort of, you know, uh, young, not adult, but I guess young, almost adult uh, experience, I don't know what I would think about this country. I might be a goddamn communist too. Yeah. So I, you know, it's it's. Yeah, it, I mean, if that's your of frame Obama. of reference, yeah, you know, if, if President Obama is just this guy who lived in the past that you don't really yeah. have many memories. Yeah, of. All you remember is the fact that they that they covered him horribly on TV. You didn't really if you if you if you missed the recovery of two thousand eight and you missed the ACA, all you remember of Obama is just like sort of not like media scuffle after media scuffle and that's all i remember of him but you know looking back at his legacy i i think obama was actually pretty good especially the fact that he let bernanka do what he needed to do to save the economy i think it's it's like it's like of reagan and paul volcker too and like as much as reagan didn't do the most to help recovery from stagflation he let paul volcker take the rein and same thing Obama for Bernanke, and that's what saved the country. The Federal Reserve, when it does its job, can do incredibly effective things. In fact, I'm very surprised that Trump hasn't messed up Jerome Powell more, but I think he, he sort of gets that Jerome Powell is doing the best of anybody in the administration. I Well, now, uh, the Fed isn't really, like, it's, the Fed can't, um, you know, it's quasi-independent, yeah. right? So it's not yeah. like, uh, you know, it's not like a member of the president's cabinet yeah. where he can... You know, you can give them an order, but they, uh, you know, presidents have certainly tried. In fact, yeah, it came Nixon out tried again, yeah. especially against the Volcker. There was, there was an accusation. Um, I think Paul Volcker claimed this um, in ninth in his memoir. I mean, yeah, Nixon I'm, punched. No, no, no. Um, uh, you'll have to tell me about that in a second. But he yeah. said that Reagan actually had put some pressure on him at least before the '84 election, um, which the Reagan people denied. So I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know about that. But like, what's this Nixon one you're talking about? Yeah, uh, Nixon apparently punched William Miller uh, because he would lower interest rates before the election. So the next time William Miller met Richard Nixon, he brought Paul Volcker, who was like seven seven with him. Just to intimidate Nixon. Uh, holy moly. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, I, I do know that um, one of our previous guests uh, is a economist named Dr. Kamal Kumar, who he covers the Fed and the Treasury specifically as his big area of focus because uh, he's, he's a macroeconomic consultant. But he was on uh, CNBC a couple months ago and they brought up like, is Jerome Powell being told what to do by the president? And it was kind of weird because whenever the president tweeted something or gave an order – Jerome Powell kind of reacted to that, which is very weird. And I feel like that, like as much as um, they were trying to like, oh, Powell's just a you know pawn of the president trying to lower things to help keep Trump afloat. I don't think that was necessarily true. To me, I think what Powell was doing was Trump's tweets have an incredible effect on the economy. Whenever he tweeted about China, the Dow plunged six hundred points. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. Like uh, this kind of reminds me of uh, you know, I wouldn't call myself an expert on the Federal Reserve by any means, but this kind of reminds me of um, what some people say that Chief Justice uh, uh, John Roberts. Uh, they, you know, people often say, well, he's he's thinking about the legitimacy of the institution 
you know, the Supreme Court when he makes it, when he writes, you know, rulings or, um, you know, what, depending on where he votes. And I think that is in one sense a little unfair to say that the man only has his particular legal opinions because of how yeah. he, like, you know, he wants the court to unfold. To me. Yeah. But, um, you know, that is a claim that some folks make, though, is that, uh, you know, he's he's uh, making decisions um, with the legitimacy of the institution in mind. So maybe, you know, when you've got a president like Trump, um, you know, uh, you're thinking about how to respond to him, not just um, by responding in the way that you think is best uh, objectively, but also in the way that you think helps um you know, preserve your the the ability of your institution, the safety of your institution to do what good it can do. So I, you know, maybe um, you know, like a, I, I can imagine a situation where, okay, well, how can we mollify him in some fashion, uh, you know, to avoid, uh, you know, to avoid him, any, you know, stirring up any real trouble. And I've heard that this is a uh, <laughs> this is a common response to to President Trump's style of bombastic governance. Um, is to just kind of, uh, you know, uh, throw him a bone without really doing much of anything. Yeah, like, I'm pretty sure that John Fulton spent most of his tenure, like, just talking to Trump about invading random places to bump his numbers up. Well, I, I bet Bolton probably wanted to do that, too. Um, so speaking of, of the Federal Reserve, uh, one, of our, you know, one of our last guests, uh, Dr. Shikumar, uh, he said that the um, the Fed's actions during a lot of the crises using quantitative, qualitative easing and buying bonds and then funding like massive stimulus kind of has ruined market signaling to the point where whatever the stock market is doing, that's not what the actually what actually the economy is doing. He said that the thing he uses to predict anything right now is the treasury 10 year yield because it's the one thing the Fed hasn't touched. So um, yeah, what's your, what's your kind of take on the government poking his nose into the, uh, into the markets right now? Well, I do wonder, um, you know, I, I know the money printer go burr meme is fun, but I do yeah. wonder how, how hard can you make it go burr? How hard can you make it? Yeah. How hard can you do that? Um, how long can you do that? I embraced um, it in like my early stage. And then I, yeah. the more I kind of read about monitors and the more I go like, Oh, you just can't, like, there's a, there's gotta be a point where like, it's not even about inflation, the point where it just, the economy stops making sense the way it should be. Well, um, you know, I, I, uh, I just would be, uh, I would be, uh, curious, um, you know, again, this is a little outside the wheel of my expertise, but I would just be curious about how far you can go before, uh, inflation does become a, an issue because, and I don't mean that to say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to kind of dog whistle, uh, well, okay, therefore stop it, you know, let's implement austerity or something. But I do think it's a, a an interesting question because, you know, inflation, I mean, nobody, uh, you know, I, you have not really personally lived through it. I have not personally really lived through it. Um, yeah. you know, we've we've uh, lived our entire lives in stable. For the yes. eight, like since 1980, it's been stable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, since the Reagan administration, it's hovered around. I think um, yeah. around, yeah. So he asked me, you know, why do you like Milton Freeman so much? Like he ended the draft and he ended inflation. That was his achievement. Why do you like who? Milton Freeman so much. Oh, it's because yeah. he ended the draft and he ended inflation. That was his. Yeah. That was his big thing. For sure. I mean, it's so it's um, you know, it's uh, it's um, <laughs> but if it if it comes back, you know, it um. It really erodes. Um, it erodes. I'm trying to think about the right way to put this. Um, it's 
nothing seems to erode uh, um, folks' faith in the future, like uh, a serious heavy dose of inflation, because suddenly your savings, you know, to the extent you've got any, are worth far less. Your check, your wages are worth far less. Everything costs more, and it feels like you're sliding backward. And I think that kind of politics, um, you know, I read actually an interesting article in Jacobin where they said uh, um, they were arguing against modern monetary theory. And they were saying, you know, one thing that we as leftists need to be careful about is <laughs> every time there's inflation, uh, that that benefits the right wingers. And they talked about Weimar Germany. And then they talked about um, uh, they said that Reagan probably you got elected off stagflation in part because of that. And I now while I you know I kind of resent the comparison there uh, or the uh, the uh, yeah, you know the, the uh, use of Reagan to say well he's uh, you know like Hitler, but um, I think the point though is. Salient that I think it's when good you to have keep in mind that the uh, the Jacobin denies multiple genocides. Yeah, they're 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 uh, they're pretty wacky, but occasionally they have uh, I think occasionally they have a writer or two. Usually they'll take something. a they'll take a good article from like Matt Brunig, like a different. Like a different <laughs> but uh, um, but yeah, they uh, uh, I think that the ba- the main point though uh, that uh, you know uh, the political consensus can change uh, with uh, with uh, high rates of inflation. inflation. Yeah. Uh, although I remember that um you know it can get uh, it can get better like yeah. I would say it got better in the eighties and it can get worse like it has in other points in history yeah. and although um I think uh, I remember this is very pertinent Scott Sumner is arguing with um Peter Schiff Peter Schiff uh, is is like one of those prominent Austrians today and is is he complete deficit hawk like if you just like if you're one dollar over budget I'll probably show up at your house and you know try to take you out back um. But Scott Sumner was pointing out to Peter Schiff that, like, all the evidence suggests, uh, at least according to, like, market monetarism, which is a school which I sort of follow, which is, like, it kind of – it's, like, an update of, of monetarism with more, like, you know, new Keynesian leanings. Uh, all the evidence suggests that when the interest rates get really – interest rates get really low, you can print as much as you kind of need, and you won't get any inflationary effect. It's fine. And the real issue really comes uh, because when the market signals get distorted. If it, because if the government isn't following a target, you, and hopefully it is a target, it's a, a nominal GDP target, um, if the government isn't following a target, then you're going to have this effect where the wages will grow really slow because um, essentially uh, it's bonds that get popped up. The companies that do well are all, are all bond-based companies, not companies which are, actually have good business plans. And so I mean, the real the real danger is not going to come from inflation. I think it's what, what, that not that prices are getting too high – or that money's becoming more worthless, or that wages are just not growing at all, and I think that's going to be the big crisis: is slow wage growth and growth in income inequality. You've seen this trend since the seventies. If you're uh, if you're talking about uh, uh, wage growth slowing, that's a that's a triple bad considering the wages have been you know, wage growth has already been slow for for some time. Yeah, now. yeah. Nineteen seventies, it started. Great divergence in '68, I believe, is when the UCD trend starting. I know that. Um, I know that. Uh, you know that part of that is the uh, increase in in benefits. You know, like cost of um, employee uh, employer healthcare, yeah. employer provided healthcare has gone up, and so with that, you know, money that might have otherwise gone to wage increases is consumed by benefits. But um, you know, uh, however far you push that uh, that answer. Um, <laughs> Any growth, any slowdown in wages, uh, in wage growth would be, uh, you know, be pretty uh, miserable. I know that uh, Paul Krugman, uh, in his book *Conscious of a Liberal*, which is like basically mm-hmm. sort of like take on *Conscious of a Conservative* by. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh, Goldwater. By Goldwater, yeah. It, when he released it, I was, I was like silently like, can you please run for president, Mr. 
uh, Mr. Krugman. Um, but uh, he used to be my favorite economist. I, he's not anymore because yep. there's like weird tweets. Uh, but anyway, he, his big idea was that because of the great divergence in the slowdown of wage growth you've seen, the reason for this is not necessarily technological cha- uh, change or like the loss of manufacturing share. It's more that the way companies have structured themselves in, mm-hmm. in the world post our dominance in manufacturing has been yeah. about shareholder profit. And mm-hmm. he's, he points to like you know, the comparison of CEOs and shareholders making so much more money than the workers because of what the market incentivizes them to do. So his big idea was you got to make market incentives go towards wage growth again. I, I My personal sort of idea is to, if you tie productivity to wage growth via tax cut, so company gets lots of um, tax cuts if um, they end up giving you know a lot of their productivity, you know, their profits from productivity to workers instead of to stock options, then that incentivizes the company to do yeah. um, you know what they want to. But if, if they don't do that, then we just get more of their money via tax to help you know via universal basic income or something like that. And normally I'm you know pretty right wing on economics and, and sort of right wing principles, mm-hmm. um, but. I think that that would, in in order to save free market, if that's what's required, it's what's required. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I don't. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that would make uh, would make sense as long as the uh, corporate tax rate, I suppose, was high enough to where, yeah. um, to where you could you could cut it meaningfully um, in such a situation. Sure. I mean, or, or even I think the other one is uh, is incomes and personal cal- uh, capital gains. Yeah. Like there, there is this sort of. Um, distortion between company capital gains and personal capital gains because company capital gains if you tax them that just makes companies slow it doesn't really yeah. help the workers mm-hmm. personal capital gains themselves there that's just profit so there's yeah. not really a distortionary effect by taxing those more because people will still trade and buy even yeah. if they're taxed at a higher rate because it's still going to be more profitable than leaving that money in a bank right 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 yeah that's kind of interesting um what do you think about the uh, uh, about the notion of you know while we're on the issue? Do you think uh, capital gain should be taxed the same as other forms of income? Um, so you mean as as high? Yeah, basically. Like I, I, you know, whatever the income tax rate is for wage income, you know, should capital gains be taxed at the same rate, or is there a compelling reason that they shouldn't be? Uh, capital gains are taxed really low. I know already, right? Uh, I think that just getting more of the capital gains that are produced to be taxed, because a lot of them are untaxed, a lot of them are filtered. Um, that might have a similar effect on on in, you know income. And honestly, with taxes, there's one my my one justification for tax. The only reason why I never say increase a tax is to pay for something. I don't believe in using taxes to make society more equal because it's still to me you're taking someone's stuff. I don't think it's theft, but you're still taking someone's stuff. So I, yeah, yeah. So just. If we need more money and we're like, okay, if we increase capital gains rate by X amount, that's going to help us get the money we need. Sure. But other than that, then leave it alone. <laughs> I think that's tax uh, land. <laughs> I, think that's, uh, I think that's the, uh, yeah, I think that's the right approach generally. Uh, I, I feel like uh, I don't like taxation for the sake of, uh, you know, uh, I guess inequality alone, but I do recognize that some, you know, maybe some amount, maybe a much greater amount of taxation needs to be done to pay for the kind of social programs to have the kind of society in which we want to live. But if you're saying, uh, you know, let's raise taxes to pay for this program, I think it's very different than saying let's raise taxes to equalize uh, 
you know, society, society, not, I'm not, uh, I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested, I guess, in dealing with the effects of, um, uh, yeah, or not the effects, the, uh, you know, I'm interested in, in, uh, improving people's lives, uh, you know, but not in sort of just, I guess, hammering anybody for the sake of, yeah. you know, hammering them. Yeah. Um, I think also, I, uh, I think the left kind of misses this when they're complaining about inequality. Um, if you want inequality to go down, the, the main one of the if, well, they're having an issue with billionaires having much power because of inequality. The solution is not to make the government do more because the way that billionaires do things is influencing via the government. If you want less influence from the rich, take away their method of control, which is the government's ability to regulate. So decreasing the government might have a better effect. Like it's a, it kind of like a, ties back to George Stigler's work on regulatory capture where he's like, well, the, the companies as they got richer, um, they tried to regulate people's lives more because it actually did decrease their own profits, take away the ability to regulate, and you have a large amount of that issue removed. Absolutely. It is absolutely the case, that, and I know because I've uh, I've participated in it, that you know, <laughs> when you've got the resources to do so, you get involved in government because, hey, you, know, you can change the rules of the game in a way that benefits you in some fashion. Why wouldn't you, right? Yeah. So I do um, I do recognize that as, a, as an important point. The Economist wrote an article about this not too long ago, um, I think in 2018, where they – maybe 2019 – um, where they talked about just billionaires. And uh, I think their conclusion was that in the United States, somewhere between one-fifth and one-fourth of all billionaires make their money through basically rent-seeking. Yeah. That is to say, you know, taking advantage of... Um, uh, taking a, uh, Private advantage equity reforms of, like that. Yeah. All the, all the income streams that don't generate any kind of, uh, any kind of uh, wealth. I know agriculture subsidies are a particular, uh, yeah. particular frustration. I went to South Dakota one time, and they have, um, you know, they grow a lot of corn in South Dakota, and they have uh, the world's only corn palace in Mitchell, South Dakota, and it's this building shaped kind of like an onion domed Russian palace, uh, and it's covered in a facade of corn cobs, which they use to make various designs and things like that. Tax dollars. Yes. Um, I don't, I think the museum itself is built with, uh, you know, contributions from you know, this and that organization or another, but ultimately it's a big testament to corn subsidies yeah. because the entire, uh, you know, the entire, uh, place is a testament to the industry that itself, uh, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know if it depends is the right word. Um, if you could, I think exist without it, but which, uh, uh, has made a, um, made a very fat living off of, uh, just government yeah. agriculture subsidies. Um, so I think it's kind of pertinent uh, to remember that, like, their their usual justification for agricultural subsidies is, oh, don't you want cheaper food? And like, but if if I use that justification on cars or movies, nobody would understand what I'm talking about. Like, like, oh yes, I would, I will subsidize the Marvel film franchise so tickets cost less. That doesn't make sense. Uh, and it, it's it's like like I I'd like cheap food, but I'd rather keep my own tax dollars uh, and use it or have the tax dollars go to something uh, which actually needs funding rather than the the most powerful industry in the United States. I know it doesn't it doesn't make sense, but they uh, you know on the other hand, it kind of uh, you know it makes sense why they or it makes sense that they do exist because like it's so um, it's so uh, it's such a like. Uh, 
such a perfect like uh, uh, example of all the uh, unique like little bits of American government, like the uh, kind of representation of like rural um, yeah. uh, jurisdictions. Uh, you know, like like uh, the farmers own the Congress people in those areas, mm-hmm. or the like. Like if you're in Nebraska, you don't vote for corn subsidies. You're not going to get elected. You're not going to get elected. And as I wonder too, like, um, <laughs> what uh, does does Iowa's unique role in our presidential election process make it yeah. even harder to like, imagine? Like, like, uh, Mayor Pete was down there corn subsidies. Yeah, like Mayor Pete was down there in Iowa advocating for corn subsidies, which is very weird to me because I, I would not imagine Pete. Buttigieg being the guy to every person, but he wanted to win Iowa, and that's but how he won, won Iowa. Win Iowa, and he won, right? Yeah. So it it uh, you know thank uh, uh, thank uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, yeah, neoliberal like stars for corn subsidies because who knows maybe they maybe they uh, spared us Bernie Sanders. Who can say? <laughs> yeah, that 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 night where I like I'm like I was fully expecting like oh this is the end of the Democratic Party which I love. Uh, Bernie, you know, Bernie's gonna win. I don't know what I'm gonna have to, you know, become a libertarian. I don't want to have to go vote for you. Know, I don't want to have to go to the convention and be like, yeah, Yo Jorgensen, my favorite candidate. 2016 though, 2016, they, like I, I like Hillary in 2016, but they had some decent candidates in 2016. Bill Weld and Gary Johnson both being former governors, you know, and pretty good at their jobs. I, uh, I, uh, I feel a, a certain uh, kinship with liber- libertarians. Um, but I do, uh, you know, because ultimately, I guess my first and foremost interest is uh, individual freedom and everything else uh, I'd like to at least imagine is geared toward, uh, you know, geared toward the uh, continuance of a society that is free. So I recognize, or at least I believe, uh, that I, I don't think it's possible to have a free society without some kind of a system of government transfer programs to fund yeah. a welfare state. I, I just like don't even think Milton it's Friedman and, and Frederick Hayek both said we need basic income to get yeah. you started in capitalism. Right, and and I remember there was actually an interesting argument I think made by Thomas Paine that that you sort of can make. Um, I it's like a, this, but. it's like a sort of Georgia's thing where like you own the collective profit yeah, of the land sort of like to the extent that all right so we have the system of property which um we all recognize is in a way arbitrary but we also recognize that it's the you know it, it's like I'm, I'm pretty Lockean so I, like I'm a natural rights here so I like property rights but there is some like there's a, like a lot of like the minute law details are kind of weird and yeah you know, like who gets yeah. cut. Right. Um, we agree that this is a good and natural thing, but that, uh, you know, some of the contours maybe, um, you know, it's a, it's a complex issue. And in any event, it wouldn't exist really if we didn't have a, a system of law enforcing it. So uh, in exchange for uh, this system of law uh, existing, we give you, uh, you know, your citizens a dividend or whatever, you know, uh, whatever you would, uh, you know, maybe some large uh, lump of money to start out with or some regular dividend or whatever, but uh, a recognition that, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, of some uh, some involvement, uh, uh, recognition that, that uh, uh, you know, you should have some share, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't be left uh, left with nothing. Yeah. So. Yeah. As much as, um, like, like, if you know uh, Urban Crystal, he said that mm-hmm. a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. <laughs> I think a neoliberal is a libertarian that's been mugged by reality. That's kind of an interesting, I don't know, I might, I might take that because, uh, yeah, like a lot of what, like one thing's, one of the yeah, things. My really first big quote. 
and yeah, neoliberal that's a good is libertarians in my reality. By reality, I like that one. I'm going to use that one. Um, I like that one, Joshua, because uh, I mean that. that I feel like uh, I feel like that might describe my own experience. A lot of uh, like I like a lot of what they say, but in practice, it just seems nonsensical. Like this idea of bring all the troops home. Okay, yeah. well, you know, I understand you might, uh, you know, you might quibble with say uh, war in Afghanistan, but like Germany, why do you want to bring the troops home from Germany? Um, you know, like uh, this is, uh, you know, th yeah. this uh, our transatlantic alliance has been a massive success, great force for global stability. The United States and its involvement abroad ensures uh, a free and open and stable uh, regime of, compared to any other point in history, largely free trade. Um, you know, like all these, all these good things that come with America's involvement in the world. The world is certainly. Um, in terms of like state on state violence, more peaceful than it's ever been. I mean, you know, the involvement of the United States in the world writ large is, I think, uh, you know, again, and I, uh, I think it's far more good than bad. And you know, yeah. it seems like if, all the you, libertarians if, are isolationists. Yeah, if you, that's one of those baffling things to me because mm -hmm. if libertarians care about individual liberty, mm -hmm. libertarians. Uh, then say, oh, borders are somewhat arbitrary. We should allow our goods in. Or, you know, borders themselves being, uh, uh, you know, artifices of the state really should be a thing. Then why do you not care about the individual liberty of people being oppressed worldwide? It's, it, you know, guns and, and bombs are cheap. And in terms of like doing giving a net effect, holding together freedom in the world compared to any other program, such a net boon, so little cost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially just in even and I'm, I uh, I think that the war in Iraq, for example, was uh, you know was a disaster and execution. But I don't think it was a, a something that there was no like yeah. uh, that you couldn't make a principled argument for. I just think that the way that they did it, and ultimately, probably the timing in which they did it. You know, I, I think that it's absolutely justified to topple dictators. But I don't think that that therefore means it's it's necessarily a good yeah. idea to to do so. You gotta always have an situation. element of like realism. Yeah, um, you know, like I I think uh, and you know I do think you should you should you know try and make some serious estimates as to the damage you're gonna do along the way as well. Yeah. But um, that said, I I think that even if you want to say all right, no more adventurism. Okay, well that's fine. But yeah, I, a lot of times we I can't hear pull that one abandon people. I hear, yeah, I hear um, libertarian folks uh, argue for just, you know, get rid of all these military bases. You know, have you ever seen the libertarian presidential debate of 2016? It's a great watch. You should the, check it the out. The guy took have. off all his clothes on stage. Well, now that's just the, the meme. Yeah, that's just a thing right? But the, the debate, um, yeah. I mean, there's some serious isolationism there. Yeah. And, and I also, just, the, the stuff. They focus on driver's licenses like a weird amount. Yeah, I don't even think about driver's licenses that much. I'm getting thing, yeah, the thing that another thing that's super is always annoying is the weird conversation that invariably results about issues like age of consent. You know, <laughs> stuff that like a kind of a fixation on issues that seem like you know that make uh, make the idea of freedom seem like a joke to people. Yeah. And I don't I don't like that. Yeah. Um, you know, so I I don't um, I recognize they have a lot of good arguments, but I think that. I think that uh, a lot of them are um, overly reductionistic. Deontological a lot, right? Like um, like a Friedman quote uh, pops into my head. He says like it, it's 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 good to say that you should never um, use bad means, but remember that the ends do justify the means in many regards. Uh, he was basically saying, you know. That as much as you say, oh, I don't want you know coercion to ever be used. Tax is bad. They'll you know they're taking stuff, people's stuff. 
you have to remember at the end of the day, what's going to allow people to be more free and to be more you know, enterprising? There's going to be a level of intervention that's needed. Yeah, it kind of um, who he, Milk Freeman did this great speech. Um, it was at like a Holiday Inn in like 1991. <laughs> it was it was just to some libertarian group, I think, and um, he said something like. I don't remember if it was Mises or Hayek who said this, so I apologize. It was one of the two. Um, but they said, uh, you know, by the way, just remember, and neither of these folks, you you would call either of these folks statists, right? Yeah. But um, uh, Friedman is uh, he's, uh, quoted one of them as saying, look, uh, at the end of the day, the, uh, the state really is the most noble institution of them all because it is the institution that makes all the other institutions possible. And so, uh, you know, I, I uh, and, you know, so I, he mentions that just as a, you know, to, to, to say these other libertarians in the audience, other people, you know, really interested in freedom. Hey, you know, chew on that. Because remember, yeah. although you know, um, we've got we've got to we've got to have a sort of tolerant the mindset. Thing, the thing about Mises is uh, you get to Mont Pelerin Society in 1947 and Hayek and Friedman were talking about like, oh, yeah, basic income really helps capitalism. Like what, what happens in 1947 Mont Pelerin Society? Uh, Friedman and Hayek are sitting there. It's a big speech on on basic income and saying like okay it's good because it you know it subsidizes people to be able to go out in the market start a business or whatever mises then gets up goes down to the, the bottom of the steps says you're all socialists and then leaves this must like, have been high that, that's a, it's a, it's a it's so good though there is a brand of socialism called hayekian socialism which just gets us so that they're like hayek was not as a as ardent of like a abolished all state intervention as opposed to like mises or ayn rand who were just could not handle any state intervention. Kind of interesting. That's uh, yeah. I like I like some of the um, uh, some of the points that, that she makes, but a lot of the points that she makes. She sort of seems like a lot of times like it says it's less about her like line of thought and more about like she had been oppressed by communism, so she wanted the exact opposite of that. She had to have the exact opposite. I feel else. like there's I feel like there's more to it than that, but I I think that the the way she like the I think Friedman put it well that that folks like her were just kind of fundamentally intolerant of other people's ideas and worldviews, whereas kind of Friedman's idea of freedom uh, really comes down to look I can never really truly know what is best for you. Uh, yeah. I can you know I can only uh, judge what is best for me, and uh, you know so ultimately. You know, yeah. uh, it's it's sort of, I guess, uh, in fact, you know, it's a uh, worldview that is less uh, less militant, less sure as of his itself. life went on. He sort of pointed out that like the only reason why he was as hardcore libertarian as he kind of was was because he felt like there's nobody else who was standing up with a nuanced take on libertarianism. Yeah. And he said like even later in his life, he he, he was like very you know he, was, he he said like oh Clinton's a great president because he said like I don't he didn't want to really he felt kind of bad about giving the idea to people that like all interventions bad and he just wanted to sort of fight back against using his line yeah. of reasoning against the what he thought was too much invention in the sixties and seventy early seventies yeah. and. 50s there was a lot of horrible yeah, was. and it's it's really it's hard to um you know I, I didn't i didn't know that he'd said that so it's kind of interesting to hear that because um i'm a freeman historian it, it's kind of right like on. i have it's, to write all this stuff basically his uh hey you know i'm uh i'm kind of amateur hour basically i got into all this because in my mid-20s i started watching his youtube series not youtube series the show free to choose that was on a great show it's on YouTube, of course, now, but um, yeah, it's uh, so yeah, it's 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 hard to to be making nuanced points all the time because yeah. you risk sort of um, not making them. It's hard to make. Uh, it's hard to kind of drive toward a clear goal 
right? Yeah, like, we're um, always saying, well, of course, but, you know, we recognize... Yeah, like, um, academic Friedman, who write, who's, like, Theory of Conceptual Function named Philip Curve, um, is, like, you look at his work and, you, it, like, back, like, on that stuff, and you, and you kind of sort of realize that, like, Friedman didn't say exactly what he believed on television. He said what he thought would convince most people to go the right direction, necessarily. Like, uh, like he's like in terms of, like his his academic papers on like the negative income tax. He kind of points out like, yeah, this is a very left wing idea, but I think it, it does the best good. I know. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's an important element to it. I mean, as long as the goal is um, to me, as long as the goal is uh, not to not to do away with freedom, uh, uh, you know, but to recognize that that is, I think, the primary goal, and then to look at ways that we can shore it up. Um, ways that we can, uh, you know, improve society along the way. You know, I'm I'm open to that. I, I just am um, the reason that a lot of the uh, sort of leftist projects toward that end uh, ultimately are are frustrating to me is because they don't seem to place much value in in individual freedom in any meaningful sense. Yeah. They try to abolish in individual they, rights a lot. Well, it's they, they put less emphasis on them. It's there's certainly less emphasis on them, and there's a different emphasis on them too. Like sort of in the sense of, well, as long as your basic needs are met, I mean, those are really what what we're concerned about. We're not so concerned yeah. about, say, you know, absolute freedom of speech, or uh, you know, the right to, um, I guess, property. really self, yeah, you know, all of that. Um, and then of course the the right wing, um, you know, they're uh, they do the coming same. up with yeah, no, they're different. You know, the way their approach is different. They're yeah. a lot more concerned with your cultural in you know your cultural uh, yeah, but like uh, life or modern you know, gop's and opposition there. to immigration is so inane yeah heard of what you know if, yeah. you, if you care about individual freedom then you say you care about like uh capitalism immigration mm -hmm. is the core yeah. free trade are absolutely. the cores of yeah. western society absolutely and uh this new crop of uh, kind of national conservatives um with the senator josh hawley and i i don't know if tom, tom cotton, cotton counts yeah. in the school or not I, they will put the competent Trump versus incompetent Trump yeah. theory that we were talking about earlier. You know which one is worse. They'll they'll be the uh, they'll be the completion of that experiment. But um, them and then this fella Adrian Vermulis, law professor from Harvard. Oh yeah, um, he's like you know Catholic he's like yeah. Like when people talk about like the intellectual dark web, like these folks are the actual intellectuals in this dark web yeah. who are basically like authoritarianism is good as long as it achieves my goals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, whatever you thought, if you, even if you fucking hate, sorry to curse here, even if you despise Ronald Reagan, nobody, I don't think anybody would accuse him of uh, secretly planning to undermine democracy. These folks are yeah. openly yeah. willing to Adrian dispense really with it. I feel like you sort of noticed that like some of these smart guys like Peter Thiel or Musk or Vermeule or, or even Einstein, they kind of get attracted to some sort of weird political ideas because they're smart in one aspect, but they kind of don't get that they don't master everything else. Like I think politics and economics is kind of the most complicated field because humans are so incredibly complicated that we don't act the same way. Like the universe sort of has a set of rules. The human brain has no rules, and it's kind of hard to govern – um, that things like that, but like, like when Peter Field goes out, like we must have an authoritarian libertarian society. Like I don't even know what he's in that case. Yeah, yeah, I I yeah. heard like, about like, this guy um who I don't I don't uh, know really anything about him other than um some of the basics. This guy Hans Hermann Hoppe. Yeah, yeah, he's like he's like um, as long as it's on your own private property, you can just do whatever you want. 
like he's a, a libertarian monarchist, basically. Paleo libertarian. Like, like, yeah, yeah. And, and basically, like, they're like, well, a liberal dictator is better than, you know, a libertarian dictator is better than uh, this democracy. Democracy's evil. It's basically you know, feudalism. It's like, do you, do yeah. you, you know, like, it, it's... That's what Murray it's, Rothbard uh, said, too. It's, yeah, we, we've actually got a pretty, uh, we, in our Discord server, we've got a fellow who's a real, uh, you know, he's a regular chatter, and he's a Rothbardian, and he's, uh, uh, he's, he's, uh, I think he recognizes the sort of, um, ridiculousness. You know, the, yeah, he, he recognizes, I think, some of the meme, memery that his view comes across as with, with, Although, uh, um, I think if you're people. looking at anarcho-capitalism, David Friedman, who's Milton Friedman's son, has a yeah. way like less depressing version of it, where it's like as much as like Rothbard <laughs> and you know Hoppe, Hoppe's a feudalist, and Rothbard just yeah. wants to just wants to abolish the states, like oh yeah, and people you know like Rothbard mm-hmm. wants to abolish states, like oh yeah, like 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 you know mankind will sort of take care of itself, will form communities, and David Friedman, his sort of idea is that like uh, he, his view is that like the way which we transition away from like a state society is it kind of just all settle down and like like work and like sort of work it out and like it's like the number one rule is when we're transitioning away we don't want it to be warlords kind of thing we want to live on like farms and like 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 build like like nice hospitals and still have farming he's kind of weird like he's obsessed with like um i think he's obsessed with feudal like feudal Islamic world, and that was his, like <laughs> prime economy. He's like, oh yeah, it was so awesome to live in like the Abbasidic Caliphate because like nobody told you what to do as long as you like, prayed five times a day. And I think that um, I. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I I've uh, I didn't know there were so many uh, anarchists and you know out there um, until I it's the most diverse Twitch. ideology somehow. And um, I think what is interesting, I, I I my greatest appreciation is for the anarchists, whether they be left or right anarchists, the anarchists who say, look, society's not going to be as good in any material sense as say what it is now, but you will be freer. You know, and I mean, all right, well, I guess in that sense, it, you know, what I don't like, though, is when they say, look, everything will be better. Yeah, everything will be great. Yeah. You know, but no, also, I just I, I had a, I was talking to a fellow one time and he just said, look, you know, people in Maine, for example, they're not going to be eating oranges anymore. Right. They're not they're, we're not going to have this system of global trade anymore. So it's not going to be a thing. But, you know, it's worth it to have more real, meaningful freedom. OK, although well, I, I think that is a whole lot of nonsense, too, is, but. Yeah. Uh, when they look at freedom, it's more of like a deontological freedom where it's like, yeah, like at the beginning, nobody's intending to coerce you, but you're going to get coerced by poverty. You're going to get coerced yeah. by people with too much yeah. guns as opposed to a, a society of a state. They can, you can try and perfect freedom. What what at the end of the day, how much freedom do you have? Like uh, I forget – like uh, yeah, it was Tyler Cohen who's a mm-hmm. – you call state capacity libertarian. So libertarian sort of understands that the state can do a lot of good in terms of building the economy. He said – you know, uh, Denmark has a lot of regulations, a lot of governmental programs. You could hardly call Denmark less free than the United States. In fact, it might be more free. So right. it's not all about how much the state is doing. It's how, at the end of the day, can you go home and, you know, can you say you're truly autonomous? Yeah. And I, so some element of that is, I think, very fairly how much money you get to keep yeah. at the end of the day. But another huge element of that is how much free time you have, you know, how freely can you speak? And all, yeah. there are a ton of different, you know, dimensions to that. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, in, in any event, it is uh, it is very interesting. I, I uh, find the anarchists, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're yeah. interesting, but I don't, um, 
you know, I don't, uh, I don't, uh, I, whether it be, and of course, my favorite thing is occasionally um, when I'll lump them together, you know, the ANCOMs and the ANCAPs, uh, and the ANCOMs will say they're not even, those ANCAPs aren't even anarchists. Yeah, then the ANCOMs, even though the ANCOMs will probably use, like, in, so much coercion to achieve an, anarcho-communism. Well, you know, it's all in the transitional phase, and it is important to remember that at the end of the day, the Soviet Union really was just the transitional phase, yeah. right? Because, of course, uh, eventually you're going to have the stateless society, the state withers away. Yeah, and all although that, uh, you know? uh, Ronald Reagan already said is, is like he told this joke where it's like two guys are walking the streets says like, oh, is this it? It's if he really achieved <laughs> true communism. And then the other guy says, no, it's going to get a hell of a lot worse. <laughs> I remember that one. Yeah. I, my favorite one, and I'm going to share this just because I'm, I'm going to hop off here in a minute. My yeah, favorite one is um, about the uh, – let me see if I can tell this one properly <laughs> – um, drives out to these uh, agriculture commissar drives out to a collective farm and he's uh, asking the farmer, hey, how's the you know how's uh, how's the conditions on the farm? Everything you know? Oh, things are great. Oh, things are great, commissar. Really? How's the turnip crop? Oh, we've got so many turnips. They're they're just great. And you know, how's the how's the wheat crop? Oh, it's tall and lush and gold. And then the wheat is so great. And uh, you know, the commissar says, wow, okay. Well, how's the potato crop doing? And so the uh, collective farmer says, well, comrade commissar, if we if we stacked all those potatoes up on top of one another, ah, they would reach the foot of God. To which the commissar says, well, this is the Soviet Union. There is no God. To which the farmer replies, well, that's all right. There are no potatoes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, the old, uh, uh, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Yeah. But uh, of I course, you know, it's, it's, I, I do want to say though, all memes aside, it is worth uh, the Soviet Union, I think, is still worth studying because yeah. it wasn't just um, it, it, Stephen Kotkin, I think, uh, who uh, did that. You know, he's working on the final volume of his three volume series on Stalin, and he did uh, another book called. Uh, I forget if it, uh, it was about Stalinism as a civilization. The title has escaped me right now. But you know, his point is that these weren't like just people who woke up and just were evil cynics who didn't yeah. believe in anything. They were right? trying they, for something. They were trying for something, right? They this wasn't just a you know a big scam. You know they were. You know, I think it worked out that way. But they were trying to build a a different kind of society, and so it's worth thinking about as a yeah. lesson. It's been uh, Joshua Miller of the Think Critical Podcast. It's great having you on, Bastiat. Yeah, it's great, great talking with you, Joshua. Um, it was a lot of fun, um, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime.